Imagine you're sitting in a field in your favorite park. It's the summertime and the afternoon sun is radiant. The sunshine feels warm on your skin. You close your eyes and take a deep breath, smiling as you exhale. Your body and mind relax. I'm Lisa Wang, and this is Climate Optimism, a podcast sharing stories of hope and possibility. This is a story about dual-use solar. Using the same area of land, we can farm the land and the sky in harmony. Today, I'm going to take you to two very different places. A solar farm in rural Minnesota and a pollinator meadow in Boston, Massachusetts in search of signs of hope. But first, a trip to the past. In 1979, President Jimmy Carter saw the potential of solar power. During the gas crisis and after the OPEC oil embargo, he announced that he was putting solar panels on the White House. There is no longer any question that solar energy is both feasible and also cost-effective. Solar energy will not pollute our air or water. We will not run short of it. No one can ever embargo the sun. Carter was optimistic about the future. In the year 2000, the solar water heater behind me, which is being dedicated today, will still be here, supplying cheap, efficient energy. A generation from now, this solar heater can either be a curiosity, a museum piece, an example of a road not taken, or it can be just a small part of one of the greatest and most exciting adventures ever undertaken by the American people. While Carter's optimism was not immediately realized, Reagan took the solar panels down when he took office, America slowly worked towards the solar age. It is important to be optimistic today because there is so much more momentum towards clean energy. Carter's commitment continued beyond his time in the White House. Today, the 94-year-old Carter lives in his hometown of Plains, Georgia, in a two-bedroom home. Carter Solar Farm now provides half of the small town's electricity needs, generating 1.3 megawatts of power per year. This is the equivalent of burning 3,600 tons of coal per year. If a mere 1% of global cropland gained solar panels, global energy demand would be offset by solar, according to scientists from Oregon State University. That is, we can supply the world with solar power, with just 1% of croplands. That's it? I grew deeply curious about the potential and opportunity of dual-use solar. If there were such simple ways to resolve solar land use impacts, why aren't we doing this now? I wanted to hear directly from farmers who have decided to lease their land for solar. Let's head to Minnesota. The sun is shining brightly in a small county known as Cold Spring. 
Farmers Jen Wagner-Lahr and her husband Larry Lahr decided to lease some of their farmland for a 5-megawatt solar array. Diverse, pollinator-friendly vegetation and honeybees thrive on the same land as the solar panels. My name is Larry Lahr and I'm the third generation on this specific farm. Uh, so my name is Jen Wagner-Lahr and um, I am married to Larry. <laughs> And we have three kids, 13, 12. Jen and I have a livestock operation that we run um, together. And then with my one brother, we also have about 550 acres of uh, tillable land that we run, which is basically mostly a corn and soybean rotation. On about 40 acres of that, we have leased for solar. Solar companies first started reaching out to them in 2013. The Lars were the first to express interest and many others remained skeptical. For the most part, they were concerned about, um, I think honestly it was the aesthetics. There was other arguments that were put forth, but really came down to the aesthetics of having a chain linked fenced in site. We didn't have other solar sites um, to a large extent to look at. So people weren't accustomed to seeing a fenced in solar site in Minnesota. I'll throw out, so it's interesting. So first of all, one of the neighbors that was opposed to our project, in fact, that group of neighbors came together and hired an attorney even to oppose our project. So it did, did get to that level of formality. Um, but as far as I know, I still get along well with those neighbors now several years um, past. Eventually, the neighbors came around. Still, there were other obstacles, especially elsewhere in the state. There was an influx of these projects all at the, about the same time throughout Minnesota. Correct. On the project. So they, they were at the point where they were, they were seeing so many requests come in for these solar sites that they wanted to just stop them all together and, you know, assess and come back to it sometime in the future. But instead, they decided to um, create this advisory group to just figure out, you know, what is, the way we, what is the way that this county wants to see these develop? Luckily, I got to sit in on that, that uh, group of uh, stakeholders and we came up with the county ordinance that now requires pollinator mix on every single project. There were so many proposals that the county considered rejecting them all. And not only did pollinator habitat support biodiversity in crops, but in some cases actually helped solar projects happen. Jen describes a county south of them that almost banned new solar projects. Case in, case in point, the one that's south of, of, of our county, uh, where they're actually requiring you know, have that agrivoltaics um, component, that that's, that's the only way that they're going to approve any solar sites in their county. So I think it is um, something that will uh, persevere. The advisory committee heard people's concerns on the aesthetics. Beyond the pollinator mix, they planted shrubs along the perimeter and it fit right into the rural landscape. We had some constraints in terms of um, neighbor opposition and wanting to make it um, an appealing um, asset to the community. Um, there was the landscaping um, components of the lease that would do that, but we also felt like you know having a pollinator mix could be you know a good story um, and and something that could appeal to the neighborhood. And so we required it as part of our lease in that case. And it worked. Pollinator-friendly solar was popular. It seems like it's not just pollinator. In this case, they're looking at you know sometimes vegetables being grown, or um, herbs, or even just you know livestock such as sheep, not goats. <laughs> We've been told by many groups that no, goats are not welcome. 
on solar sites or you know for grazing of, of I would say probably more passive livestock species. So it's been interesting to watch the progression. Larry describes how on the farm margins have gotten tighter and so their solar site has been able to help provide a stable source of income for the family. Additionally, the pollinators supported on their solar farm help pollinate crops in nearby farmland. The solar provides benefits to people in surrounding areas too. As time went on, people came to embrace the solar farms. Larry calls them passive neighbors. A solar site is as passive a neighbor as we can get. Um, and so I'd much sooner see if the site would get developed that it get developed as solar, something passive, rather than having it be residential down the road. You know, for one instance. of the, the bigger cities in our area um, subscribed to that power, as well as I think one of the, a school district in the area um, as well. So, um, you know, there's certainly um, beneficiaries um, close to home that are benefiting from, you know, a long term power contract. We certainly did like the idea of, of uh, we're getting a 50 acre site that has now very good water infiltration, um, you know, not whatsoever exposed to erosion and so forth. So environmentally, there's benefits that go beyond just the production of, of renewable energy. It's the fact that um, there's a much less intensive use of that land than, what the, than when it was actively farmed, of course. There are so many people working on low carbon solutions that will help our land and the people who share it. These solutions may be new and unfamiliar, but once people realize the benefits, they warm up to it. Imagine a world where we work together to create a sustainable future. And so, what does a solar farm look like when it's being prepped? The land is fully cleared of vegetation. Imagine soil that is dry, barren, and susceptible to erosion. This means the soil, rock, and earthy material can be washed away or gradually destructed. Standard solar industry practice today is letting this barren land remain idle until construction begins. This results in further soil erosion and topsoil loss, which makes it harder for plants to grow. And these plants stabilize soil with above-ground vegetation and roots below the ground, combining to physically protect soil against erosion. Dual-use solar protects this interdependent relationship between plants and soil. I, I wanted to learn more about the ecological benefits of dual-use solar, and where better to do that than at Arnold Arboretum, a museum of trees teaching the world about plants. It's just 30 minutes from where I'm recording, near Boston, Massachusetts. I took a field trip to the Arboretum Solar Pollinator Meadow, along with a few friends from the Harvard Undergraduate Clean Energy Group. The sun was shining brightly, casting a warm glow on the vibrant orange and red fall leaves. It was a crisp and clear autumn day. The sky was a clear wash of blue, and tree branches swayed gently in the breeze. Let's take a stroll through the solar meadow. Brendan Keegan, a horticulturalist at the Arboretum, manages the solar pollinator meadow. He was kind enough to take time out of his Sunday to show us around. You could hear them before you saw them. 
I'd go out to the solar meadow. Um, you could hear the bumblebees um, buzz pollinating from 10 or 15 feet away. There were so, so many bumblebees on those, on those flowers. Brendan regularly leads bird walks and landscape tours, sharing his deep understanding of beneficial plants for wildlife. He also pointed out to us how lovely the native wildflowers smelled. And teas and tinctures. This is wild bergamot um, or bee balm. And you can smell this one as well as well if you like. It smells it's kind of like soap. Yeah, it smells kind of like an oregano. Um, yeah, you can you can yeah, pinch yeah. a leaf or take it off. Brendan would go out into the field early in the morning to beat the heat. And in the morning light was amazed by how their landscape had transformed. Um, which is a really interesting thing to see in the middle of a city that that kind of attraction to a to a single little or single acre um, spot. So we definitely have lots of bumblebees, lots of honeybees. This meadow gives us hope that we can restore nature and support biodiversity while reducing our emissions. What exactly does a dual-use solar site look like? I zoomed with Danny Schussler, the Arboretum's head of operations and project management, who helped launch the solar project. Danny walked me through the design and installation process. We actually asked, how can we alter our design to better fit in a larger range of biodiversity? Uh, and to do that, we actually raised the panels up uh, two feet so that they're actually four feet from the bottom uh, of the panels to the ground. And the idea, of course, with the design of most solar fields is efficiency. So pack as much in as you can and maximize your production. The Arboretum designed with the intention to allow more sunlight to penetrate through to the ground. The idea here was to perhaps sacrifice a little bit of efficiency for a lot of benefit. Uh, in terms of ecosystem services and just the range, sheer range of species we could plant. The team sought out plants that would be good host plants for butterflies, bees, and other pollinators. Having a pervious surface below the pollinator meadow as opposed to alternatives that you might see in other large solar fields such as crushed stone or even pavement or concrete, uh, we're soaking up, of course, lots of storm water with our meadow. The soil underneath the panels can soak up rain and water, as opposed to allowing it to run off or flood, gathering on asphalt on a rainy day. Imagine stepping onto hard asphalt, and now imagine walking on a field of soil. Feel the difference? The leaves crunching beneath your feet, plant matter which will decompose, becomes food for healthy soil. These projects help with healing the soil. Just as students burn out towards the end of a semester, soil can burn out from being worked too hard. Finally, I spoke with Dr. Ned Friedman, the director of the Arboretum. Ned is a professor of organismic and evolutionary biology at Harvard University. He's a botanist who has devoted his entire career to studying plants, and his enthusiasm and delight when talking about biodiversity really shines through. Let's hear from Ned. And it's the largest solar array that's been uh, put up at Harvard University. It's 1,300 panels. Um, it has three quarters of a million dollars of battery so we can store and shave peak usage, reducing our carbon footprint with the panels. But you've read about insect declines and uh, you've really, you know, it's a worldwide phenomenon. And then you say, well, what about in a city, which is, you know, a really inhospitable place for a lot of biodiversity. And they didn't want to just stop at the carbon reductions from clean energy. You know, one of the things that's really disturbing about a lot of solar panels you see along the highways and in old farm fields is 
they just, you know, they throw lawn down under it. And uh, I can't think of anything that's less uh, friendly for, for uh, local biodiversity than, than, you know, gridding out these solar installations with lawn, uh, really managing this very, very vibrant now uh, area at the Arboretum Arboretum that I think is a leading example of what we should be doing going forward in every solar installation. This is the only native solar meadow uh, in Massachusetts right now, but uh, um, we're trying to get the word out. So the Arboretum has a wealth of resources to prioritize sustainability, but how about the average landowner or average solar company or farmer wanting to convert old farmland into productive land that's also supporting the environment? How can dual-use solar become a wider spread practice? The key challenges don't lie in the extra amount of steel needed to raise the solar panels, but in the core knowledge to develop a project. I think we have an opportunity to show people that for very little uh, additional work, but it is work, I mean, you still have to manage this, um, you can do something really good for the world. Uh, because we like to be kind of the, the agent of change uh, and, and to be helpful. We don't have to reinvent the wheel for a sustainable future. Projects like the Solar Pollinator Meadow are planting seeds and paving the way for others. Dual-use solar can help lighten our load on the land. Inhaling deeply, imagine taking a breath of fresh air while standing in the meadow. You're surrounded by wildflowers, grasses, and distant trees. Smell the damp, carbon-rich, healthy soils and vegetation. Paying attention, you notice how soft the rich soil is beneath your feet. Wildflowers are in full bloom. Bee balm, an assortment of white, bright pink, and lavender flowers with slender tubular petals are in full bloom. Notice how peaceful and free the birds and bees appear, gliding from one flower to the next, landing easily. As we're trying to figure out how to green the grid, figure out new solutions, today we are standing in one a field of solar and habitat. We should feel hopeful about continuing to make progress on climate change. There are more and more people working on this critical problem, from community organizers, to teachers, to artists, to engineers, to farmers, and to scientists developing solutions. Ned and his team at the Arnold Arboretum are creating the world that they imagine. Jen and Larry are showing us that it's possible. Pollinator-friendly solar plants have helped their community and nearby counties to view solar and land in a new light. If we want to change the world, we must first believe that change itself is possible. We must imagine the world we want to live in. And we can imagine this world together. Special thanks to Jill Lepore and the entire Sound of the Story class for your feedback and support this semester. Thanks also to Emil Massad and the Harvard Undergraduate Clean Energy Group podcast team for helping to bring these stories to light. 
and for your unwavering dedication to working on climate. Thank you to Jen Wagner-Lar and Larry Lar, and Brendan Keegan, Danny Schussler, and Ned Friedman at the Arnold Arboretum for interviewing with me. Thank you to Paul Erdman, ecological science conservationist at the Minnesota Board of Water and Soil Resources. Finally, thank you for listening. I'm Lisa Wang, and this was Climate Optimism. <laughs>